Thank you for your welcome. It's lovely to see you folks on this lovely Sunday morning. The passage for this morning is Acts chapter 10, and Lynn is going to read it for us. So it's the whole chapter. It's a long chapter, but one you'll know. But we need to read the whole of the scripture so God can speak to us through his word. So Lynn's going to read Acts chapter 10. Good morning. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius? Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, all as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only human myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, 
you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or visit them. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in their way of being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Which, of course, he did. And uh, next week you have the next part, which is chapter 11, which tells the story again. And you have to ask the question, what is so important about this story that Luke takes such a long time to tell you the whole story, not just once, but twice? It's clearly very important and uh, important for us, as it would have been for the first hearers of the story. Crises like this pandemic cause people to ask questions. And one of the questions that Christians are asking is, what exactly is the church? As we struggle to know how to shape it, how to meet, what it means when we can't get into our buildings, when we can't even hug each other, when we want to do that, we can't meet together, which we want to do. We ask the question, what exactly is the church? And um, in addition to the pandemic, we've also had the disastrous effects of what happened in America, causing the 
furore from black people about their um, their standing in societies. So we have a lot of dislocation, fracture, people feeling ostracized, victimized. That's another question too. People feel excluded. And this passage here addresses both those issues. We need to see what the Bible has to say about things because we as Westerners come to the Bible often with the same questions in our hearts that we are addressing and think the, the Bible is addressing the questions we are asking. And we have become a very individual society. So we think that being a Christian is all about going to heaven when we die. Well, it involves that, but that's not what it's all about. If that was what it was all about, if that was all that it was all about, then why didn't the angel simply explain to Cornelius what he had to do to become a Christian so he would get to heaven when he died and save all that time about sending people to Peter and bringing him back? If going to heaven when we die is what it's all about, then why do we have the story of God playing games with Peter and sheets and animals and all sorts of stuff? It's totally irrelevant. It has no meaning to us. What's the point? Well, the point is that it does actually fit into God's plan of doing things. And we have to remember how God does things in the world. Because one of the questions people are asking is, why doesn't God do something in the midst of all this? That's always the question people ask. Why isn't God doing something? And we as Christians know he is, but sometimes struggle to see exactly what God may be doing. Well, it helps if we work out how God has done things in the past so we can work out what he's doing in the future. And the story of the Bible is all about God being with us and God working through us. The first one is very reassuring. We often forget the second one. So in the beginning, God was with Adam and Eve in the garden, but he had given them responsibility to look after the garden for him. He wasn't looking after the garden. They weren't in sun lounges while God did all the weeding. The responsibility was theirs. If you go to the other end of the Bible, you find that God will be with us on earth, but we are known as a kingdom and priests to serve God. The responsibility for looking after this renewed earth remains with humanity as it had at the beginning. And throughout the Bible, we have the same reality right the way through. So during the Exodus, when God asked them to build a tabernacle, he said, build me a tabernacle so I will be with them and dwell among them. And of course, you get to Matthew and the announcement by the angel of Jesus' birth, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, we know. But in addition to be wanting to be with us, and that's frequently the case in the Bible, you have him choosing Abraham. And the reason he chooses Abraham and Abraham's family and Abraham's nation is that God will use them to bless all the nations of the world. God isn't going to do it directly. He's going to do it through the people he's chosen. So God wants to be with us, but wants to work with us and through us. The choosing by Jesus of 12 
people to be his discipleship band. It's a deliberate connection with the Old Testament. He's saying the story continues. It comes to its climax in Jesus, and it's a continuation of the same story. But there was a snag, of course, as you and I both know, that the choice of Israel in God's saving purposes was one of responsibility, not favoritism. Unfortunately, Israel forgot her vocation, twisted her privilege into favoritism, and ended up heartily despising the Gentiles around in all the other nations. Let me just give you a quote from here. The Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. Here was an illustration of that. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. So much for the blessing of God coming to the nations of the world through the Jewish race. So Jews and Gentiles despised each other. So this is a very important moment because Cornelius and Peter are at, at different ends of the social spectrum. One is a Jew who hates Gentiles or has been brought up to hate Gentiles, put it that way. And the other is not only a Gentile, but a Roman, part of the oppressive um, dominating race. And not only a Roman, but a Roman soldier. You can't get much worse than that. And they're at two ends of the extreme. So if Peter, a Jew, is to accept Cornelius, a Gentile, on equal terms, then Peter has to go through a profound change in his thinking. This is a game-changing moment for the church. Peter will later write this in a deliberate reference to the Old Testament story. He describes the one new man that Jesus made as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. In Ephesians, Paul speaks about the work of Jesus on the cross, both in terms of our individual salvation, we have been saved by grace through faith, but also in terms of our collective salvation, that he has taken the Jew and the Gentile and made the two one and reconciled that one person to God in his own body. And that's what's happening here. There has to be an inclusion of Cornelius in this band, this merry band of disciples. So the church's role in the world precisely mimics Abraham's role in the world, only takes it further. The role of Abraham was to receive the blessing of God, to live out the fullness of the blessing of God, and to give that blessing away that other nations would be blessed. That was his task. So he was to receive the blessing and to give it away. Their role was to be a kingdom of priests to serve God in the world. In other words, to represent God to the world and the world to God. In like manner, the New Testament children of Abraham by faith you and I, as well as those who are Abraham's children by blood, 
now one body, the church, are also a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, our role as a kingdom is to serve as God's priests to the world, to represent God to the world and the world to God. As the choice of Israel in God's saving purposes was one of responsibility, not favoritism, so also for the church, made up of people from every tribe and language and nation, our choice in God's saving purposes is one of responsibility, not favoritism. We exist not for ourselves, but for God and the world. So in this story, Cornelius is not simply saved that he can go to heaven when he dies. That will come. But in rescuing him, God incorporates him into the one body of Christ, the people of God, who have been called by God to be priests to the world, to represent the world to God and God to the world. He has become part of the one new man whose task is so to live before the world that men and women might glorify God. He has become part of the chosen people of God whose responsibility is to give away the blessing of God to their neighbours, to their communities, to the other nations, that they would be blessed. He is part of the new one worldwide church who daily pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So the question that people ask at times of crisis along the lines of where is God in this crisis? The answer, of course, is he is here. He is in the midst of this crisis. He has called his people to be his people in the midst of the crisis, to represent him. Not in absentia, he is with us. He is here in his church, who filled with and walking in step with his spirit, live alongside those who are suffering and hurting, bringing comfort, relief and hope in the midst of darkness and despair. And so what's our response? One of the things I suspect that many Christians have found difficult is we haven't had the answers that we want to all the questions we have. We haven't been able to do all the things we should be able to do, we think. Let me give you an illustration of how we are meant to live. When Jesus hears of the death of his friend Lazarus, and he goes there and is accused of being too tardy, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. He doesn't criticise that. He doesn't reject that. He doesn't say it's not true. His first response is to stand with the mourners and weep. Now, my friends, we know that in a few moments, he will raise Lazarus to life. He knows that's going to happen. But the first thing he does is he weeps. And this isn't some charade. This isn't play acting. He's not trying to convince people that he cares. He is broken hearted over the state of his world that people die 
and people are bereaved because of sin in the world. My friends, if we are not weeping for the state of the world, what is wrong with us? It is not as it should be. And one of the first things and a great thing we can do is weep. The, the book of Psalms not only has Psalms of lament, there is a whole book on lamentation in the Bible. And we as Christians are not good at lamenting. We're good at criticizing, but not lamenting. So our calling remains as it was for Abraham to be blessed by God in order to bring blessing to the nations, to our communities, to our neighbors. And if we ask, how are we meant to do that? What do we do? How can we do it in these days of restriction? We have to look at Jesus. And he said, this is what the kingdom of God looks like and showed us what it is. Now, when we talk about God being sovereign, God being king, the Lord being master of all, we usually get into our mind the vision of an imperial emperor, a powerful king, throwing his weight around. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? You see a man who stands at the grave of a friend and weeps. You see a man, when crucified, forgiving his enemies. You have a man saying, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. When we think about being the presence of God in the world, that's the kind of presence the world needs. And that's the kind of presence God has called us to be. And many of you, I dare say, have been broken hearted over what's been happening to neighbours and friends, over businesses, families, the pressure people have been under in their homes. Many of you, I dare say, have been at the sharp end of caring for people like that. That is precisely the kind of way God wants his presence to be manifest in the world, that God cares for people. And he's right in the midst of all this. This pandemic isn't God's idea. He didn't plan it. It's not some kind of divine trickery. This is a result of the foundational sins that our forefathers caused the world to be, be dysfunctional. It's part of the life of living in this broken world. He didn't catch God by surprise, but God is doing something. He's raising up his people to care for each other in this world. Peter and now Cornelius and every other follower of Jesus are called to this precious role to be the presence of God in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow of their world. Not necessarily to have all the answers, but to lament over the brokenness of the world and to bring light and love and hope to the world. And of course, Peter and now Cornelius and every other follower of Jesus knows that it won't always be like this. That one day, as part of the great multitude that Revelation talks about, that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people and language, we will one day announce and proclaim in a loud voice together 
salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will all be there on that magnificent day when the glorious Saviour of the world arrives for this renewed earth and puts it all to rights, when the dwelling of God will be with men and women on earth and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And we will be part of that great and glorious company, that new society who know that when Jesus says, yes, I'm coming soon, respond with anticipation, amen, come Lord Jesus. So please, my friends, do not be frustrated by what you cannot do. Let the love of God so fill your hearts that you will simply express the love and joy and hope of God to the needy folk around and in whatever way you can express the kindness and blessing of God. God is here, we know it, and through us reaches out to the many folk around. God has not abandoned us or forsaken us. God is with us. And that's why this story is told so carefully. It's not just about Cornelius getting his ticket to heaven. It's about Cornelius becoming part of this chosen people to be a transforming influence in his society. And it's about this society, whatever else the church is, the church is for everyone, for everyone. There is no one excluded from the church. And as our world, we know it full well, is fractured and hurting and angry and peeving. What the world needs now is a church like God. And we are that church, the bride of Christ, the people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, one new man, bringing the reconciling message and ministry of God's love to the world. God bless you in your ministry this week. Amen.